There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Thank you, John. Put me your Bible is 1 Samuel chapter 11, and if you can, please stand when you get that. The Bible says, And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, and I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. And the elders of Jabez said to him, Hold off for seven days, we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. The messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people, And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. The Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard the news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. We numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. They said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. And the messengers came and reported it to the man of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the man of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come over to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and killed the Ammonites to the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made a Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Well, it's such a, a great story for us today about the danger of compromise and never surrendering. And I pray you would just write that upon the tablet of our hearts. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. General Tomuka Yashimata, who would be executed for war crimes in 1946, devised a brilliant plan to neutralize Singapore by capturing British Malaya first and then invading the island fortress from the north. He launched his invasion on December 8, 1941, 
and his force of approximately only 30,000 combat troops took just two months to reduce the peninsula before advancing on Singapore. The actual fighting in Singapore lasted just one week before the smaller Japanese force captured over 80,000 British, Australian, Indian, and Malayan troops. Prime Minister Winston Churchill described the fall of Singapore as the worst disaster and largest capitulation in British history. Isn't that crazy? They surrendered even though they didn't have to. Crazier still is that we, as the children of God, often do the exact same thing. We look at the outward circumstances of our life and we hear that voice whisper in our ear that it's no use. We may as well give in once again and wave the white flag of surrender. But what if we didn't? What if we truly believed all the stuff that we say we believe? I'm talking to me first and foremost. What would that look like? Well, this morning we're going to be given a biblical example of just that, of saying, not this time. I am not surrendering to the devil's demands. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2 with me. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on Israel. We learned last time that the name Nahash meant serpent. And for our purposes this morning, I want us to see how Nahash and Satan both share some of the same characteristics. Lesson number one. When we take our eyes off of God, we see what appears to be the hopelessness of our situation, which may lead us to negotiate with evil. Lesson number two. Like Nahash, the devil seeks our surrender. Lesson number three, like Nahash, the devil always seeks to humiliate us. And finally, lesson number four, like Nahash, the devil's terms always seem to want to cripple us, thereby making us unfit or less capable in our service in the kingdom of God. Now, we have learned from verse one that the sadistic Ammonites were right on Israel's doorsteps. And Jabesh Gilead was a good city to pick on. It was isolated to the east of the Jordan, just west of Ammon. Now we see something of the character of Nahash, this king from the nation. Nahash pledged to gouge out their eyes, the same way that the Philistines had treated Samson's eyes. So rather than engage in a long and costly siege, Nahash offers to negotiate with the people in the city and let them live. All he demanded was they submit to the humiliating and crippling punishment of having their eye gouged out. Okay, I don't know about you, but having my eye gouged out would be a sticking point in the negotiating process. And think for a minute how well a soldier would fight with only one eye. It would be difficult because of the way that the soldier would fight with a sword and a shield. The soldiers would use the right eye to look over the shield to see their enemies, and they would also use the right eye to sight the arrow before they shot them. You know, in the same way, the devil also seeks to cripple us, making us incapable of serving the Lord. Well, why not gouge out both eyes, you might be thinking. Well, he wanted them to be servants, and it's hard to be a servant if you are completely blind. 
So Nahash is nothing if not practical. Now, this was the first reproach the Israelites suffered as a nation in the new land. And how will they deal with it? Well, unfortunately, not too well. Verse 3, please. And the elders of Jabez said to him, Hold off for seven days, so we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field, and Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. Why do you think that Nahash would agree to give Jabesh Gilead a week to find reinforcements? I suggest it was because he must have known the story out of Judges 21. You see, when civil war broke out between Israel and Benjamin and the other 11 tribes, the only men who didn't fight were the tribe of Jabesh Gilead. Perhaps knowing this, Nahash was sure that no one would come to their aid. Or perhaps Nahash thought so little of Israel's strength, he was playing with them as a cat plays with the mouse. But they sound pathetic, don't they? Remember what Samuel said in chapter 10, verse 19? He said, you have rejected your God who saves you. And as though to demonstrate the accuracy of Samuel's words, in their crisis, the elders do not cry out to the Lord. They did not even send for the Ark of the Covenant as they had done earlier in the book. They just proposed to send messengers throughout the territory of Israel in the vague hope that there might be someone out there that would save them. They certainly did not send for Saul. Like the men at the end of the chapter 10, it would seem that they did not expect him to save them. Saul did not even come into their minds. The pace of life in the country was right and more suitable for Saul, who knew no other lifestyle and had no city ambitions. He was content to be in his own little world. The safe and familiar comfort zone of Mother Nature and domestic animals where falling leaves and chirping birds and lazy cows surrounded him. In the country, he was oblivious to the world around him, moving comfortably at a cow's pace and blending in with the domestic servants. Saul was not in a hurry to fulfill his destiny or the people's expectations. His destiny was Gilgal, but he was still in Gibeah. Samuel predicted greatness for him, but greatness would have to wait. The old, unfashionable job of farming could not. He was still the same old farm worker, feeding, walking, and guarding the livestock. Farmer he was, warrior he was not. He lived in his father's house, tended his father's oxen, and minded his father's business. It would seem that he had no grandiose thoughts of being a hero or a warrior. He was just a big old farm boy. Think Jethro of the Beverly Hillbillies. When the news came, Saul was plowing in the field of the oxen. I think it's telling that the people wouldn't fight and shed blood, but they would shed tears. This clearly shows their lack of courage that the Lord could help them in any way. And so all they can do is just bemoan their plight. The Jews were noted for their loud and passionate expressions of grief. And when Saul heard these expressions, he asked the people what the cause was. 
And no sooner did the king understand the situation that he experienced an endowment of the Spirit of God. And his own spirit was filled with righteous indignation that any such a thing could happen in Israel. And while the results of the Spirit of God coming upon a person can indeed be peace and harmony, we see here that anger and righteous indignation can also be the result of the Spirit of God coming upon a person. Now, please don't use this as a proof text if you're angry all the time that God is dwelling in you. Because I've met some believers, I think, have this verse underlined and on their fridge. This teaches us only that anger can be a friend or it can be an enemy. Anger can change the world and make it better or poison those who are outraged with it and make it worse. Centuries ago, Aristotle said this, Anyone can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry at the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that is not easy. Now, the Bible discourages the wrong kind of anger. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath, and do not give the devil a foothold. Ephesians 4.26. So are you saying the Bible says we should never be angry? No. Even Jesus was angry from time to time, but it was always a righteous kind of anger. We also see that righteous anger was prominent in the book of Judges, where the Spirit drove the judges to violent action against the oppressors of God's people. Martin Luther called this the anger of love. Remember when Jesus was in the temple and he drove out the people with a whip? Why did he do that? Because they were taking advantage of people who only wanted to get closer to God. If I were a tele-evangelist, I would pay particular attention to that story. This also happened to Jesus when he was at the tomb of Lazarus. He saw the people weeping. He says he was greatly moved in spirit and troubled. But the Greek text says he snorted like a war horse going into battle. And he said, take me to the body, Dad, burn it. At least that's what my Bible says. But back to our story. Please notice that the servant said, we'll be your slaves. Let me ask you this morning, what are you willing to sacrifice to maintain a peaceable existence with the devil? Is it your family, your finances, or that thing you think that no one knows anything about? But the terms that Nahash offered Jabesh Gilead are the exact same terms that the devil tries to offer us. Look at them. That I may thrust out your right eye. Now, to lose that eye was to make them ineffective for warfare. Nahash would never have to fear them again. To give up the right eye means to choose what God has not chosen. It means to, ch- it means to choose to see the way that God does not see. It means to live by that which satisfies only self. It means I agree not to call sin, sin. Secondly, it's symbolic. The right hand is the hand of blessing. It symbolizes that which God has chosen and conversely, that which has chosen God. By offering to make a treaty or a covenant with Nahash here, they were in effect asking Nahash to become their new king. And so we see the people weeping, sure that God has delivered them into the hands of the enemy, the serpent Nahash. And you know what? 
Nahash the serpent reminds me of another serpent who does the exact same thing to us this morning. Maybe you've heard him whisper that same thing in your ear when he says that past failures prevent future blessings. Past failures forbid future rescues. And this, I think we can find a lesson for us. That is, just as Nahash the serpent based his plan on attack of past performance, the devil continually tries to whisper in our ears today that past failures prevent future blessings and that past failures means there won't be anything else that we will ever have in God's economy. But just as Nahash would prove to be wrong, in God's economy, there is always a second chance. But allow me to pause here and warn us all of just one thing. Never make a covenant with sin. Never enter into a treaty with your enemy. You cannot trust the devil. He is not an ally. He was and is and always will be the enemy of your soul. His only desire for your life is to steal, kill, and destroy. Verse 7, please. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. So Saul took an ox and cut it up and had it delivered throughout all the territory of Israel. As a side note, I would hate to be in the mailman that had to deliver that. <laughs> but this cutting up of the oxen is also a symbolic gesture for Saul. It's as though he is saying, you know what? My days of farming are now over. From now on, he will be a warrior king who will lead his people into victory over their enemies. It says that fear came upon all the people and they all came out with one consent. But make no mistake. There is nothing heroic in this. It was not noble or virtuous. Just as Saul's rage was inspired by God's spirit, so the people's response to Saul was brought about by the hand of God upon them. The man who was struck, stuck with Paul or Saul in chapter 10, verse 26, it says, were men whose hearts God had touched. Now God had touched many more hearts, and they all come out trembling. One of the reasons that Israel had asked for a king was so that the nation could unite under one leader and have a better opportunity to face their enemies. And the Lord condescended to reach down to their level of unbelief and gave them a king who looked like a natural warrior. But how sad it is that God's people trusted a man of clay whom they could admire, and yet they would not trust the Lord who throughout the history of Israel had proven himself over and over again to be powerful on their behalf. In his grace, though, God's going to give Saul an opportunity to prove himself and consolidate his authority. Verse 9, they said to the messengers who came, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. The end of verse 10 says, And they were glad. And they were glad? I guess so. 
So I can imagine now that they realize they're not going to have their eyes gouged out, that they put all the eye patches away and quit working on their pirate accents. As a matter of fact, they were told, when they were told they received help, they all shouted the Hebrew equivalent of yes, or maybe it was I, I. Get it? That's a play on words, E-Y-E, and it don't matter. With some cunning, the Jabesh people gave the Ammonites the impression that their search had failed. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. We will give ourselves up to you as more literally we will come out to you, which is the same verb that is used in verse 7. This is also the same verb that is used in the people's promise to Nahash in verse 3, and it can mean come out to fight. But the ambiguity would have escaped Nahash, who was no doubt confirmed in his complacency by the apparent promises of the men of Jabesh. Verse 11, So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watched, and killed Ammonites of the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Saul marched all night long, gathering 300,000 men along the way. Now keep in mind again, Saul is not a soldier, he is a farmer. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon a man, he is given a sense of exactly what he needs to do. Don't ever underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to give a person abilities or insights that they have never had before. Saul would have known the story of Gideon and his defeat of the Midianites, Because like Gideon, he divided his army into three parts and also attacked at night. Now the morning watch was from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., so he caught the enemy by surprise and completely routed them. The slaughter was so great that no two Ammonite soldiers escaped together. Every Ammonite that survived fled by himself. Now it seemed impossible that they would win the battle. But isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew 19:26? Jesus looked at them and said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. I think God wants us to begin to see the reality of what seems to be the impossibilities that are in our lives. For example, for many years the four-minute mile was believed to be an impossibility beyond even the reach of the very best athletes. But on May 6, 1954, Roger Bannister ran a mile in less than four minutes. Today, athletes all over the world run a mile in less than four minutes. What was thought to be impossible is now very well possible. The thing is, though, some Christians live so far below what God has equipped them to be simply because they have acquiesced to the enemy's demands and allowed the serpent's whisper to overcome them. And so they think that their situation has been, is, and always will be an impossibility. Leave here this morning knowing that no no matter what you are facing, with God, it is not impossible. Verse 12, please. And the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. And Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. 
And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. There is an important little byplay that happens in verses 12 and 13. Memories are long among Saul's supporters. You know how people can take criticism of their favorites very personally. Like if you're a diehard Elvis fan and someone tells you that Elvis is dead, you're likely to take that very personally and get upset. Well, some of Saul's followers have heard the words of his detractors. Now they've also taken them to heart. So they say, where are those guys who said that Saul couldn't be king? Bring them out here. We're in a killing mood and we're all out of Ammonites. So now they think that it's time to get revenge. Now that they've been shown what Saul is truly made of or what they think he's made of. But again, Saul shows a wisdom that surely comes from the Spirit of God. And he says, no one shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has brought deliverance to Israel. This isn't a day to be remembered as the day of Saul's vengeance. This should be remembered as the day that God delivered Israel from the oppressor. And so the story finishes on the note of Saul being the right man for the job. A king who is capable of acting as God's representative. The grace of Saul towards those who opposed him was impressive. It was not like Jesus who said, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come into the world to judge it, but to save it. John 12:47. Now this does not mean that judgment would not eventually come to those people. It meant that judgment was not the sole purpose of his first visit. He came to save, and those who would later reject him must hear that message first. Now, the experience of the people of Israel in this chapter had the fingerprints of God all over it. It's an experience in which I hope you have a familiar, though deeper, experience. Following that great victory that has been won for you by Christ Jesus, do you now recognize the wickedness of rejecting him as your king? Have you seen that in him God has worked such a great salvation? Now you must live that way in the light of how you treat others. Let me ask us one last question. What was it that finally unified the nation of Israel? It was love. When the Israelites saw Saul take the reins and march their troops to rescue men who were about to be blinded by the serpent, the nation finally said, that's our man. It wasn't when Saul prophesied or even when he was presented by Samuel that the nation finally supported him. It was not until they saw that Saul was the man who cared about all of his countrymen that they finally rallied around him. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, if I know all things, if I prophesy, if I give my body to be burned, if I have faith to move mountains but I have not love, I'm nothing. The point at which people will see that you would march all night long to save them and be there for them is the point that they will then say, we want you to have input and impact into our lives. Love is the key. It's not prophecy. It's not tongues. It's not knowledge. If you pray for one thing, pray that the Lord will make you a man or a woman of love. And by the way, the people never forgot Saul's rescue of them, even in his death. Listen to this account out of 1 Samuel chapter 31. It says, It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. 
They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news of the house of their idols into the people. They put his weapons in the temple of Astaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall at Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the walls of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. When the men of Jabesh-Gilead received word that Saul's corpse was pinned to the wall on a Philistine city, their hearts were stirred with compassion. So they marched all night. Does that sound familiar? The men of Jabesh-Gilead risked their very lives to recover the body of Saul and his sons. Their bodies were so mutilated that eventually they had to burn them, but they buried their bones under a tree in their own city. Now, what moved these men? Why would they risk their lives, outnumbered and outmanned, to recover the headless corpse of a judged king? I would suggest it was because Saul marched all night to rescue the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, and the men of Jabesh-Gilead never forgot that. And 40 years later, when he was naked and humiliated, the men to whom Saul had shown mercy returned the favor. It's as if at the very end of Saul's life, everything has been consumed, and the only thing remembered for good is the account we are reading right here this morning. Now, there was another king whose body was pinned, not to a wall, but to a cross. The agony was unbelievable. The humiliation, unspeakable. He was spiritually decapitated as well, for he was the head. But where was his body? Except for John, they all fled into the night. He was burned in the fire of God's righteous indignation. And so we come to his table this morning and we say, I remember what you did for me. We were about to be done away with by the enemy, but you came from heaven to rescue us. Others might not remember. Others might not care. But we remember what you did for us when you marched all night long to come into this world to save us. Well, in closing, Saul had passed his first test, but it wouldn't be long before he would fail in a much simpler test and lose the entire kingdom. This is probably the high point in Saul's life for sinful ambition and power finally corrupts him. Saintly Andrew Bonar used to say, we must be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. Saul won his first battle, but he would lose the victory. It was a time of spiritual revival and national rejoicing, and so they lived all happily ever after, well, for a few days anyway. Father, we are so thankful that uh, you did come down here for us, Lord. None of us here deserve that. But you marched all night long. You saw that we had no chance. We had no one else that could save us. It says in Isaiah that you said, when you saw that there was no one to save them, your own arm saved us. We thank you for that, Lord. Burn that into us today. and Let it change our daily lives. We ask in Christ's name, amen.